Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the spring season of the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by talking with Sarah Parkinson of Johns Hopkins University about her new book, Beyond the Lines, Social Networks and Palestinian Militant Organizations in Wartime Lebanon. And then we talked to Wendy Perlman of Northwestern University about her recent American Political Science Review article, Emotional Sensibility, exploring the methodological and ethical implications of research participants' emotions. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Sarah Parkinson of Johns Hopkins University. She's the author of the new book, Beyond the Lines, Social Networks and Palestinian Militant Organizations in Wartime Lebanon. Uh, Sarah, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Uh, This book has been in the works for a long time. It's so great to see it out. Um, And uh, tell us a little bit about this and, uh, you know, what should people expect? Uh, great. Thanks for having me, Mark. It is This has been in the works for a long time, um, too long in all honesty. Um, I think the best way to describe what the book is about is to actually um, take the person who opens the book and to expand from there. So Munaidele is um, the woman who whose story opens the book, and she is uh, at the time an ambulance driver who is watching Israeli troops come up the coastal road in Saida in South Lebanon in 1982. So the book is set um, between 1982 and 1990, although it delves sort of backwards into the initial stages of the Lebanese Civil War. And it looks at how Palestinian militant organizations and the people in them changed over the course of the Lebanese Civil War, specifically with regards to regionalized repertoires of violence, right? So this gets at the idea that in the context of a civil war, um, a civil war could look very, very different from city to city, from town to town, and over time within all of those spaces. So Munaidele is sitting watching the Israeli troops advance, knowing that she's driving an ambulance down to um, bring wounded Palestinian fighters from the front lines back to hospitals in Saida. And when I talk to her about this role, she talks about how she also trained as a nurse. She had done um, battlefield combat, uh, sort of frontline battlefield combat, but had also been a logistician and all kinds of other roles. She also married within her leftist faction. And as we sort of talk through these personal experiences of individuals, what we get is a picture of say civil war, international conflict, um, foreign occupation, that is very different from a lot of the work that's been done on these issues in political science. And that's for sort of three reasons that I lay out here. One is the backstage labor aspect, where when we talk about, say, civil war, the image that often comes to mind is of a young 18-year-old male-identified fighter wielding an AK-47 or some such. And one of the key arguments in the book is that we really need to be looking beyond that particular sort of trope and thinking about all of the problem solving um, that goes into actually fielding um, groups that conduct irregular warfare. So the people who are the Munaideles, the the medical workers, the logisticians, the intelligence agents, and all of the people who make it possible for the 18-year-old who frankly doesn't have a whole lot of training to do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's the first part. 
The second is that you have um, sort of that that isolated image of the 18 year old, this character or caricature of the fighter. And one of the things that I want to get at with the stories that I relay or represent in the book is that people are incredibly complicated and the way in which um, their social networks, their quotidian social networks is the, the terminology that I use, the ways in which they are, someone like Munaidele is not just a military nurse, she's also a sister, she's also a member of various social clubs, she's a member of um, various community organizations, the way in which all of those relationships come to bear on her participation in um, in um, irregular conflict, in insurgency in this case, um, and how the effects of violence that she experiences and that people in those networks experience reverberate through those networks and shape organizational trajectories. So one of the things that tends to happen in analyses of conflict, I'd say broadly, but very often intrastate, or civil war, whatever category you want to use, is that we tend to think, or analysts tend to think of a formal organization with a formal hierarchy and these very defined roles and to treat it as though that in the organization that starts fighting a war is the organization that finishes fighting that war. And what I show is that all of the effects of different types of violence actually shape the underlying non-military social networks in a way that winds up changing how that organization and its subunits look by the end of war, if war is to end, really. <laughs> the third point, and the reason that I start with Munaidele is that there is, that, that conflict is gendered, and I am not the first person to say this. There is a long line of feminist researchers who have made this point very, very clearly, leveraging an incredible amount of empirical evidence um, and theorizing gender in war. Um, so that point is not particularly unique, but thinking about how the roles that women identified militants play shift and how women move through these organizations became extraordinarily central to my work in part because of the incredibly essential role that they played in logistics and in intelligence and in doing things like document forgery in smuggling money and weaponry in participating in underground public publication printing and smuggling. Um, often people think of these as being sort of lesser or second tier roles, but if we look at insurgency or irregular conflict as a series of, you know, puzzles that need to be solved as opposed to a series of people who need to be killed, this work really becomes central to the operation, right? Almost no one who I spoke to thought that the work of killing was central to insurgency. They really pointed to these other roles of how are you relating to a population? Can you keep schools running? Can you keep people fed? Is there fresh water? Is there plasma for hospitals? Those are the real challenges that allow you to continue fighting as opposed to did that 18 year old guy with the AK-47 take out one other soldier? Now, there's so much uh, a rich a theoretical uh, it, uh, kind of ways that we could go here. I mean, there's so much I want to talk about in terms of violence and organizations and um, and and the rest. But before we get to that, you know, tell us a little bit about the field research that went into this book, because, you know, in a sense, there's a lot of types of information in here that I think couldn't ordinarily be collected or 
have not in the past ordinarily been collected by a lot of researchers. And there's a lot of very interesting, I think, methodological discussion, very self-reflective uh, methodological discussion about your field research here. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that and what you think um, it, we should know about what you were doing. Sure. So one of the things that I would say outright is that I was very much trained as an interdisciplinary scholar, and I tried to bring that to bear on this particular project. Um, probably the most obvious two fields that come to bear on the methodology specifically are anthropology and sociology. This is clearly in an ethnographic um, tradition. The majority of the book is ethnohistory in terms of you know, I was deeply, deeply immersed in the community um, that my research participants were part of, um, but studying historical processes, right? So I was asking about the past most of the time. Um, it's also deeply influenced by history. I, I was always really cognizant of both which archives were and were not present to access. Um, but you also don't know what's out there until you start asking around and people start literally, in my case, pulling up floorboards and handing things to me, um, which is which is an incredible privilege that I really hope the book um, honors properly. So the book, as I said, is ethnohistory, and it was uh, a real it was a real process. This is not the kind of work that you sort of walk out the door and do because you want to. Um, I had begun engaging with Palestinian communities in Lebanon uh, as a doctoral student in 2007. I spent the summers of 2007 and 2008 in Lebanon. Um, and then when I went back for a year of fieldwork, I think that the most important thing to say is that I really didn't ask a lot of questions for six months. Um, one of the approaches that I took really seriously is to let people get to know me specifically as I was volunteering in communities and to decide if they wanted to talk to me. Um, the project that the book represents is not the project that I started out to do. And this is probably a really good reminder to the doctoral students out there, but also, you know what, to junior faculty, it's something that I remind myself of constantly, that sometimes projects have to fall apart in order to come to fruition. Um, this project fell apart a good number of times, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, but I knew the sort of basic tenets of I, I wanted to look at organizational and social change in the context of, of violence and in the context of war. I wanted to look at organizational trajectories. And I, in many and and I was very clear about this with people um, and was interested in, in the role of women in uh, militant organizations. And there were sort of certain points along the way, and I would say starting specifically in the spring of 2010, when people were like, you know what, I want to talk to you about this. Um, and specifically in the context of Fatah's women's office and right around Nakba Day, which is the commemoration of the dispossession and expulsion of Palestinians from what is now the state of Israel, um, a bunch of women in Fatah's women's office were doing historical projects to talk about the role of women. And this really offered an initial sort of ethnographic entree into asking questions that really lined up with a lot of the work that they were doing. Um, and when we do ethnographic work, it's, it's, a, it's a methodology in which everything is data, mm -hmm. right? So if someone can or cannot find a portrait of a woman 
who was a high-ranking officer in the 1980s, it's really interesting if you can't find that portrait, right? Um, and is it because there was not a portrait? Is it because it was destroyed to protect her identity? Is it because the archives aren't particularly good or organized? And thinking through all of these different questions, thinking about how women's roles were portrayed and, um, and sort of what wasn't brought to the fore became this opportunity to open up this world of, well, well tell me more. Um, and because of the relationships that I had worked really hard to develop, but also the relationships that people chose to develop with me. And I, and I think that that has to be sort of foregrounded that mm -hmm. um, choice and consent were really central to this project. Um, people started sort of sharing things like you know, sharing stories in the context of even their everyday interactions, which are, of course, deeply gendered in many ways. So learning about the smuggling network came from someone venting about how the men wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for the role that women had played because right. some guy had treated someone badly one day. Um, so that's sort of the how it started. But this the whole methodology was about these sort of complementary methods within this overarching ethnographic project that was really about the everyday and using the everyday to ask about the past. No, it's really it's really interesting, and um, and it really comes through uh, in terms of the, the the nature of the material. I want to work backwards through your three questions, uh, your your three big contributions, but maybe I'll frame it like this. Um, the word uh, uh, women uh, does not appear in the title of your book. And yet I think most people will take that, the, the, the your kind of discussion of the contribution of women as one of the major takeaways uh, of the book. And I think that that's really interesting. The way that what you're showing <laughs> is that actually this is about these insurgent militant organizations in which women are a central part. It's not about the women, it's about the organizations. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that both I, I think that both the roles that women play and the way in which war is gendered, those those are both central sort of aspects of of the book and of the story. Um, but they're not the whole story, first of all. Um, and I do think that to tell, but I think the the larger point, as you sort of put it, is to tell an organizational story, we have to talk about gender. We have to talk about women. Um and that often I think we get these sort of piecemeal stories or these piecemeal representations of experience, of conflict, of whatever, because we're not sort of looking at the dynamic interaction of how, um, you know, the experience, the gendered experiences, experiences of conflict um, are both very present and also how they might change over the course of a conflict, right? So like, Early on in Lebanon, mass incarceration is deeply, deeply gendered, right? Tens of thousands of men are put into Israeli prison camps, and it's all, it's a couple hundred women. That is that is a deeply gendered um, effect. Whereas gender later on, if we're looking, and that's in South Lebanon, later on in Beirut, if we're sort of thinking about the gendered roles and the gendered um, experiences of violence, um, you have women who are working to smuggle um, food and medical supplies and um, and other things into besieged camps, right? And are getting attacked by militias and experiencing sexual violence as that is happening. Whereas men are, or many men are trapped in the camps 
um, fighting and doing all kinds of other things, right? So those are different gendered experiences of what a lot of people would put under the umbrella of one civil war or one set of conflicts. Um, so I, I think it's important to get at all that, but they're not, they're not, um, they don't occur in a vacuum. Right. So this is why I'm interested in the social change aspect. Right. Well, I'll be I'll, I'll be blunter than you are, which is, <laughs> which is to say that, you know, in a sense, what you're saying is that if you don't understand and appreciate the role that women are playing in these organizations, then you're getting the organizations wrong. You're not correctly yeah. understanding how they adapt, how they act, the alliances they form, the tactics they use. Uh, to me, it, it's a very central uh, question, which I think um, really does come through, at least in my reading of the book. So I think it's a question that has to be asked. Um, I have not found, even in what we might call the most misogynistic militant organizations, an organization that has no women in it, right? Um, I think it is like I, I think it is um, stunning the number of or, uh, the number of books that are written on militant organizations that do not interview a single woman. That is absurd. Um, to be perfectly blunt, <laughs> um, I know you're shocked, but um, in the particular organizations that I study, there is variation across mm -hmm. them. You know, Asaika is is definitely different from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine is distinct from Fatah, right? Um, but women are playing a role in all of those organizations. Um, in the mid 1980s, uh, a woman was the highest ranking officer in Fatah in Lebanon, right? Um, and, and that deserves to be said and her role deserves to be recognized. Um, so I do think that there is a glaring, a, a glaring omission in many studies of rebellion, insurgency, et cetera, right? So let's work backwards then, uh, because one of the things about the book, which is super interesting, is this extremely fine-grained way that you talk about the effects of violence and the different types of effects that violence has on organizations and individuals and social networks. And you mentioned a minute ago, mass incarceration is one example of this. Um, and there's lots of other examples throughout the book of specific types of violence having specific types of effects on social cohesion on uh, and, and on everything else. So walk us through this a little bit about uh, you know how we should think about violence and its effects on these uh, organizations. One good starting point here might be, uh, especially for those who are familiar with studies of insurgency, counterinsurgency, political violence. Um, one of the things I'm I'm working through here in the book is there are categories that people use in terms of uh, discriminant, indiscriminant, selective, direct, indirect violence, sort of on one hand, um, and the approach of repertoires, right, which is um, Gutierrez, Senin, and, and Wood, for example, right? Um, they wrote one of the big, big articles on this. And when we take a relational approach, and I do take a relational approach in the book, so I'm not dealing with the idea of um, sort of individual isolated actors. The idea is that everyone is embedded in society in webs of relations that affect how they act and where they affect how others act. That doesn't mean that people don't have free will. They certainly have agency, but it's the idea of being ensconced in webs of relations that shape how you operate. So no one is going to experience an act of violence to themselves 
or against another in in isolation, right? It's it's not for the way that I work. It's not sort of a simple uh, causal chain from someone experiences violence and does a thing. Violence reverberates through societies. And this is really based on what my interlocutors, how they talked to me about experiencing violence and thinking about it and responding to it. And it's very rare that anyone's doing that in isolation, right? Um, but they're also interpreting it. Mm -hmm. um, this is These are emotion-laden processes. They are meaning-laden processes. And we know this from people like Leanne Fuji's work, right? Violence is a performance. It is imbued with meaning and it, it shapes people's emotions. Um, and we know that also from, you know, yeah. decades, if not centuries of work on, on violence. Um, you make the point that but, the, the intentions of selective violence, for example, it's not necessarily how it's experienced. Right. So one of the points that I make is people might be theorizing violence as indiscriminate, but that it might not be felt as such, right? Mm -hmm. The response is felt as such. These, and the point there is that these categories might actually just be too sort of both broad, but also um, not incorporating how people actually experience violence in a way that actually constrains their, their theoretical utility. Right. Whereas when we look at repertoires of violence, the other thing that we get into here is, look, no military organization in the history of the world has just used one tactic at one time. Yeah. So if you are looking at a repertoire that is including mass incarceration of tens of thousands of men alongside indiscriminate bombing, alongside using informants, alongside um, torture, for example, you're going to get very different effects, but you need to actually look at how people understand and experience them to figure out what's really going on rather than saying blanket, well, this is indiscriminate violence, or because they're informants, this becomes selective violence. Like you can't, within any military campaign, those categories are, are co-present. So it's really hard to sort of um, parse out what the effects of each are because people are trying to process all of that at once. Uh, and, and talking to people about this, they will say, they will also talk about the fact that like, you don't really know what is going on a bunch of the time when you're responding to something. Um, one of my interlocutors talks about hearing about the Sabra Shatila massacre and being told that the Israelis were coming down the road to her camp to do the same thing. And, you know, that's, that's not what happened. That's what she heard and what she understood in that moment and what shaped her her response, right? And this is, I I would argue, something that's deeply important to understand in the context of what we might call modern warfare now, where misinformation and disinformation are part of the strategy, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's extreme, like, it, and it's not like misinformation and disinformation are new, or that psychological warfare is new. It's about thinking through okay, how is this affecting how people relate to each other and how they organize as a result, especially if they're consciously now trying to parse through it and then participating in it themselves, um, right? Like I, I, my interlocutors dealt in, in printing newspapers and smuggling them into camps. They would have a very different experience now between Instagram and Telegram and the rest of it. Right. <laughs> um, you, you look at, you know, and the way you trace this out in the book, like some of the really kind of huge, horrifying, exemplary acts of violence, like say, for example, 
the kind of the mass complete devastation of the south of Lebanon in the initial days of the invasion, the siege of Beirut, which is a completely different form, completely different experience, or the mm-hmm. Sabra Shatila massacre. Again, mm-hmm. very, very different localized experience. And that's one of the things that I find mm-hmm. so interesting about the book, the necessity of going into the uh, this in a very fine-grained way, how different forms of violence trigger different kinds of organizational adaptation. Right. So this actually gets to one of like the early and I would say not particularly nuanced questions that I was asking, which is why are contemporary factions in um, Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon organized in such different ways? They all bear the name of various Palestinian parties. Um, They all fall under their organizational umbrella, but they do, they do operate in different ways. They do different things. Um, And what I figured out when I was sort of thinking through that question um, was okay, what was the trajectory that led there? And one of the things that people said when I was asking, like, well, why why is the South different? This is just a really fundamental question. They were like, there was informing in the South, right? And the effects, and there was, and what the book actually lays out is that there were actually distinctions in how informing and collaboration and infiltration operated across different refugee camps and different broad geographic spaces in South Lebanon, during um, the Israeli occupation of Saida and Sur, and then the more restricted occupation zone after 1985. Um, but that it really shaped people and how they participated in organizations and, and even ha- things like how they taught their kids, right? Um, how the fact that people like, you know, lock their doors and booby trap them, that's a different experience than what Beirut was at that at that point. Um, and, and in my, the people to whom I was speaking felt that this had deeply, deeply shaped how the factions could organize, right? Independently of what the name is and what the military hierarchy says, constitutively, they behave in a different way. And sometimes like real solidarities form, other times they don't. I don't know if I would use the word like sort of real solidarities. It's just how do people choose to adapt in the face of, you know, unspeakable, all of its unspeakable violence, right? Um, It's not one is worse and one is better, which is really unsatisfying to a lot of political scientists. (laughs) Um, But that it's different, that you will behave in a different way if you are situated in a community that is being policed by an often intoxicated militia at night that where people are breaking bottles and banging on windows and throwing insults, right? There's this, there's a thing where um, one of the memoirs that I cite where the author uh, talks about, you know, sleeping on the roof or sleeping on the second floor because of these roving militias, right? Um, that is fundamentally different from what happens when you have what's sort of left of the Lebanese government in West Beirut at this juncture, rounding up Palestinian men, mm-hmm. right? Um, there, There is no better in that situation. Right, right. Right. But there is, I need to do something differently. I need to relate to my neighbors in different ways. I need to talk to my family in different ways, right? This is when in Beirut, um, men who are 
hiding in their homes are sending their female cousins to bring news to the rest of the family. Um, again, this would be probably drastically different today because you would just send a message on Signal. I would hope it was Signal and not WhatsApp because metadata people. But um, but that's fundamentally different from how you deal with a masked militia, right? right. And one that doesn't appear to be very well socialized, which means we know from plenty of other um, theorists of political violence that you're likely to get a lot of violence against civilians, right? Right. Well, let's move up then to this question of organizational change. And you have these, uh, you know, the, you talk about these processes, uh, repurposing, remapping, emergence mm-hmm. of new organizational forms. Walk us through this a little bit and how the the work you've done kind of gets you to those outcomes. Right. This was uh, this was not actually data that I set out to get. This came, and when we so when we think about methodology, one of the ways in which I used to open my interviews with people was tell me a little bit about your family. And I I actually write about this in a chapter in an in an edited volume on on comparison and rethinking comparison. Mm-hmm. But one of the ideas here is just to think about relationships. Right. And how we treat relationships, particularly when we face crises. And right now, I think about crisis or in my current work, I'm thinking about crisis in terms of, for example, natural disaster. Um, Although there are no natural disasters, that's a whole other conversation. But how do we how do we engage with our relationships, whether they are professional, whether they are familial, whether they are social, et cetera? So repurposing is sort of, um, and and what you would see is, um, and and what sort of prompted the the question that motivates the book is you would see these organizations that didn't exist at the beginning of the time period that I study, right? These smuggling apparatuses, which were the sort of first one where I managed to put things together, Mm -hmm. largely because of the education that was given to me by the women with whom I was working, right? and sort of thinking through, well, okay, how do you build a smuggling apparatus? And uh, and it wasn't about, and this is partially why um, theoretically we could go back to the like why women aren't in the title. It's not about women. It's about the way in which women were situated in social ties that intersected with militant organizations, hierarchies that made them um, ideal smugglers mm-hmm. in many cases. In other settings, different types of people inhabit that particular network space, right? It might be a bartender, for example, because the question is one of brokerage, who ties different networks together, right? What relationship bridges ties, right? That are otherwise unconnected. Um, So what I was able to put together from asking questions like, tell me about your family. Tell me what clubs you were in. I have yet to find another book on rebellion that is interested in asking about people's engagement with dance teams. <laughs> um, but anyone who is familiar with Palestinian society would say like Debka teams are important, right? Debka is a, a traditional dance in the region. And so many people to whom I spoke were like, oh yeah. And then my friend from the Debka team and I started talking about how to handle this situation, right? Or soccer teams, football teams, if you are in any part of the world other than North America, but right, these relationships that we generate that we can call upon in an emergency. And that got me to the idea of repurposing, right? So I have 
a friendship with you, Mark, you are a professional contact and maybe something happens and I decide to call on you for something that is outside those realms, right? Like for some reason, none of my friends with cars in Washington, DC can drive me to a doctor's appointment. Okay, maybe I call Mark, mm -hmm. which is not something that I would usually do in the context of our professional friendship. Crisis makes us do these things, right? right? And we can think about, you know, there was just an article in Wired on, um, how a lot of the sort of uh, how former U.S. soldiers got um, Afghan uh, got Afghans with whom they had worked in Afghanistan out of Afghanistan, and so much of it was through sort of someone calling a friend who called a friend who was able to put something together. Right, that a lot of the people who worked on this weren't actually direct contacts of the Afghans who were eventually. Um, airlifted out who got to the gates with whatever signal or whatever or something so that's repurposing where we use relationships sort of outside of the constitutive domain in which we think of them right we think of family as being a certain constitutive set of things um we think of professional relationships as being constrained necessarily right um remapping is when these become institutionalized when we consistently use them for this new purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And again, this is about expediency. Like if all of the men are in prison and they were the way in which certain things happened in militant organizations, well, okay, we're going to do things a new way and that needs to get institutionalized pretty quickly if we're going to survive. Um, whereas emergence is where you actually have new constitutive understandings of what an organization is doing right, where it has become an entirely new entity. And I would argue that um, certain, for example, local defensive fronts, like ones that were in Beirut in the late 1980s, fall under that category. And I make that argument in the book because they were expressly cross-factional, for example, um, and operated in ways that actually went against the orders of elites in Damascus, for example, right? So you can have the repurposing of ties without having remapping, right? You can have remapping without emergence, but what interested me over the course of this time period in Lebanon with how Palestinians were adapting to their realities was you do see emergence. And that's not something that is really accounted for in representations of civil war, responses to occupation, whatever, that there are these new organizations that have empowered different kinds of actors than the formal hierarchies that everyone assumes is doing the work of insurgency, irregular warfare, et cetera, right? They assume that there are categories and ranks attached to all of that, and people are moving up through the ranks in these standardized ways, whereas what I see, for example, is women moving into incredibly elite roles, but who may or may not have the title to match it, for example. And if you carry this through in, in sort of a conflict studies type of way, the implication is that if you're only dealing with like the titled elites in the formal hierarchies, when we're talking about things like negotiations or post-war reconciliation, you are missing an entire organizational dynamic of who is empowered, of who is doing the work, of who has constituents in many cases, um, and who has perspective on what people have experienced. Okay, this is a it, it's a fascinating book. It's uh, and there's so much more in here that we didn't have time to talk about, but that just means that people are going to have to go buy the book and read it themselves. Sarah, thank you so much. They for can buy me. it, or it is open access, so you can actually access it for free on the Cornell University Press website. That's good to know. Thank you.
Thank you so much. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. Welcome back. There's been a long ongoing debate within political science in recent years about research ethics, about different forms of methodological engagement, and questions related not only to data transparency and data production, but the broader sense of what is it that we're doing when we go into the field, when we do research, what do we owe the people to whom we're speaking, and what do we owe ourselves? And I, one of the most interesting and I think um, articulate voices on this in our discipline has long been Wendy Perlman of Northwestern University. And she has a new article out in the American Political Science Review entitled Emotional Sensibility, Exploring the Methodological and Ethical Implications of Research Participants' Emotions. Uh, and we're delighted to have her on the podcast today. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for that really kind introduction, Mark. Well, I really we've been having these it. conversations for over a decade now. In <laughs> fact, you were one of the inspirations for one of our early POMAPS publications on research ethics and um, ethical Middle East political science. And so now you've got this new article. Uh, congratulations, by the way, APSR, not bad. Um, okay. Tell us a little bit about this, how you came to write it and what you see as the major contribution. Yeah, thanks. So I see this article as in some ways bringing together two different strands of work that I've been doing over many years. And one is research on, on emotions and the role of emotions in politics as itself a variable. So I've, I've done some work on the role of emotions in uh, protest participation and sustaining authoritarian rule. So emotions as a variable, how it affects what people do, how systems rule, what people uh, imagine as possible has been very interesting to me. Emotions as a topic, that's one strand. And the other strand is, as you said, um, human subjects research, both methods and ethics of how we engage human beings and interview them and survey them and find them and access them and work with them. So I thought to bring these two strands together and think about emotions, not simply as a topic for research, a subject of research, but as how emotions are part of the very process of research. And they're certainly a part of the process of research for researchers themselves. We have emotions and their emotions that are triggered by doing field work. But in this article in particular, I wanted to sort of delve into the question of research participants' emotions and think about how research participants' emotions affect the kind of data that we gather from these research participants. How does it affect the research we do, um, both methodologically and ethically. So as you said in your introduction, I began with, an eth with a research ethics um, a, a sort of impetus. The, the first very early draft of this, of this article was a memo for a research, a workshop on research ethics. And I began thinking about what are the, the obligations that researchers have towards uh, the emotional experiences of research, of research for research participants. Um, but as I thought more and more about ethics, I thought this isn't just an ethical issue, it's also a methodological issue. Research participants' emotions affect uh, the kind of data we gather, not only um, our ethical obligations to human subjects in the first place. Now, one thing which is interesting is you, you introduced the article and this emotional sensibility by linking it to what is also, I think, a major strand in the literature today, the ethnographic sensibility and the, the late uh, great Lian Fuji is kind of the fulcrum between these two. How do those relate to each other? 
Yeah, so I was very inspired by the idea of, of ethnographic sensibility, which you know, in, in the article I, I quote Ed Schatz, who's one of many who, who thinks of it as an approach to research that seeks to glean the meaning that people attribute to their reality. So as we know, ethnography really focuses on meaning making. And it's trying to um, think always it, as an approach, a kind of attentiveness to research that is always thinking about what do these topics and experiences really mean for people? Um, not simply getting information to fill certain gaps, to answer particular questions, but really thinking about the meaning making behind it. So I thought about emotional sensibility, kind of taking that formula as an approach that seeks to glean the emotional experiences of the people whom we study and who participate in our research. And I like this term sensibility because we're not talking about a particular method here. Ethnographic sensibility is not about ethnography per se, is a certain attentiveness that you can bring to and apply to any sort of method. It's an attentiveness to meaning making. Similarly, I thought about emotional sensibility as not a particular method that I want everyone to go out and do interviews like I do in my own research, but an attentiveness to emotions that you can bring to experimental research, to survey research, to interview-based research, to participant observation. It's just being attentive that emotions matter, that any research that human researchers do with human beings is gonna have emotions as a part of it, that um, the informants from which we try to gather information are not simply giving answers to questions or expressing preferences or relaying information, Emotions are a part of what they do, what they think, what they say, what they don't say, uh, whether they choose to participate in our research in the first place. Emotions are a part of any human experience. And as long as we're dealing with humans, emotions are gonna be a part of that. And emotional sensibility is a call to think about that, to take it seriously, to be attentive to it, and also think about what we miss or we might get wrong if we uh, don't bring this attentiveness to, to emotions and have it as a part of what we do when we deal with human beings. Now, you argue that uh, having this sort of emotional sensibility will make research, quote, more metho methodologically valid and ethically sound. Let's talk about those one at a time. Uh, the methodologically valid, give us some examples and kind of walk us through this a little bit about how attentiveness to emotional um, responses uh, will improve the quality of our data. Yeah, so the article breaks down um, sort of different categories. And the first is, is thinking that emotions are themselves data, that when you ask a question or have an impetus or observe an event, that how people feel, um, what they what they feel themselves tells us something about, about, um, about the political world and, and their engagement in the political world and helps us answer questions. So emotions are themselves data to not just look at, at um, at, at the populations we study as, uh, as sources of, of, um, of answers to questions, but as feeling individuals and, and, and paying attention to those feelings can, can, really, um, can really tell us uh, things that we miss otherwise, how people feel about violence, how they feel about economics, how they feel about their, um, their representatives, how they feel about elections. Um, it's not simply how you're going to vote yes or no, but a certain enthusiasm or anger or fear that people bring to any of these events themselves tells us something about, about them. So emotions are themselves, are themselves data. 
Um, another kind of category about the role of emotions methodologically is thinking about how emotions um, influence other data that we that we gather. Um, that uh, in one major part of this is sort of thinking through um, issues that are very familiar to survey researchers, things like social desirability bias. Um, you know, when when someone says this is a major, of course, issue that that people um, say what they think you want to hear, mm -hmm. um, or they say what they uh, think will make them look good um, and not look bad. And I think about this. I think you know, if somebody is telling a research a surveyor what they uh, what they think that the surveyor wants to hear or what they think will put them in a good light. It's not that they're thinking through some economic utility of what do I get from this by, by saying a certain falsified view or, or giving an untruthful answer. Um, it's usually a, they're trying to avoid a, avoid a feeling of embarrassment, of looking for some sort of gratification. There's an emotional impetus that might lead someone to give untruthful answers. So the more we understand about the kinds of contexts and, uh, and factors that surround the emotions that lead people to give an untruthful answer, the more we can sort of try to avoid and detect and, and make sure that the, the information that people give us, the preferences they express, the, the information they, they deliver or don't deliver, what they say or what they hide, we can understand what's, what's happening there. So emotions affect sort of validity and quality and reliability of other sorts of data besides being emotion data themselves. So, th so, th so things, so things, so things like, for example, um, I, you know, I, I need to answer this question, so I don't want to let this person down, um, like that, like that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I will need to answer this question because I don't want to leave this person down. I'm going to give a certain answer that that presents me as a good light in a good light that makes me seem like a moral or upstanding human being, as opposed to actually having. Um, uh, being motivated by by jealousy or by greed or by hatred, so uh, by saying things uh, of that of that sort to seem uh, to saying what you think people should mm -hmm. say um, or what the or what the person wants you to say or or something of that sort that those are they're emotional mechanisms that that leads people to make those types of decisions um, and and it might uh, you know we might be, be gathering things in incorrectly I mean one uh, another ex example that I discuss in the in the paper which I think is a, um, a terrific run um, of, of researchers finding for example that um, in poor communities, um, people might react to uh, enumerators who are doing a survey for example using a tablet and might feel um, in, uh, embarrassed uh, or with a enumerator who they assume to be more wealthy than they are and they might falsely report their own economic information because they they are feeling um, uh, in some way ashamed or lesser than an, than, than an enumerator who's clearly got a lot of money because they're, they're taking this information down on an iPad. So things of that of, of being, and these are all examples that are out there in the literature that I have not myself uh, uncovered, but try to bring together ways and, and note the ways that emotions might be um, talked about or, or part of people's findings in a whole range of different methods and spaces. And in, in using this term emotional sensibility is trying to draw connections across all these things that are out there in various spaces of research, but haven't been necessarily connected in this, in this way. So that's part of what I'm trying to do in this, this article. So there may, might be all sorts of ways in which fear, shame, um, uh, distress, resentment, 
affect what people say, what they don't say. And the more that we're attentive to that, the more, the more we'll understand the data we're, we're gathering. Um, this last bit about, I'm sorry, go ahead. One of, one of the oh, things, okay. there's a really interesting like a uh, uh, passage in there about kind of the flip side of that, where the, when the, shall we say, the lack of emotional sensibility leads to this kind of this obtuse line of questioning where it actually is angering the respondent who feels like she's not being listened to and she ends up not answering the questions because she doesn't feel like she's being respected. No, absolutely. And I think this that's a really, a really big issue. And there we're, we're getting not only that it's not going to lead the person to answer the questions, but this last issue of how emotions conditions sort of subsequent data collection mm. for, you know, weeks or months or days or generations afterwards, people might, um, you know, remember and have the sense that researchers are rude or they're inconsiderate or they um, are opportunistic and they only want to you know, extract data from people and then they disappear or they don't treat people with respect. And this is something that a lot of people have have, have discussed. Um, and our colleague, Sarah Parkinson, has a wonderful article on, on the discourtesy bias, looking through the implications of that. So this is all ways in which emotions can affect the data that someone gathers in the moment and also who does or who does not participate in what they do or they do not say um, long after a researcher leaves the field. You have this phrase, I don't know if it's your phrase or if you took it from someone, but this idea of we don't want to treat research as a raid where we where we sweep, you know, you swoop in, gather the information and get out as fast as you can, that there's certain, you know, kind of relationships that are built and things that you owe to the people that you're talking to. Yeah, and whether these relationships are are built and sustained over time, or there's a certain respect and um, insensitivity in the moment, uh, that, I think that the latter is sort of the the bare minimum. But yeah, in some ways, the the article is a simple call for people to be decent <laughs> and 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 respect and respect research subjects. But sometimes it's it's helpful to lay out all of the reasons why and if the the ethical implications should be sufficient. Um, but in addition, there are real methodological uh, implications. And that's what I try to do is to, to think of different researchers and where they're coming from and, and try to speak a language that would reach a large people in the discipline with an appeal to, to take this stuff seriously. Now, before we before we get to the ethics part, uh, just one more thing on the uh, on the methods thing. You said that this is a sensibility and not a method per se. Obviously, it's more, um, you know, kind of... Uh, aligned with the kind of long-term ethnography and, and that sort of thing. But as you say, it could be applied in any circumstance. But trying to imagine what this looks like, if you are doing a survey and you're asking people, you're going down your battery of questions, you can tell they're getting agitated. Um, what do you do with that as a uh, as a researcher? It's a terrific question. In some ways, because I don't do survey research, I'm um, I'm not really qualified to say. So it's a bit probably unfair of me to write an article saying everybody should take this seriously. But I actually have no idea how you do it in your realm of research. But in some ways, that as a sort of agenda setting piece, that's, um, you know, I probably believe it to, to survey research. Just think about what this really means and implications, whether it's a numerator. There's some space for enumerators to take down the data to record. Um, how a person, how a how a respondent seems to what what ex what emotions they're expressing in answering questions. If it is in an online survey in which there's a question at the end that says something like, "How did this make you feel?" Um, I, you know, I I don't know in different methods or different. Uh, 
context, whether that would really be effective, whether the data there would be meaningful, whether people would respond. Um, but I think there are things to, to consider. And people well, definitely can worth following up. I think. I think that's definitely worth yeah. following up in as we, you know, as a community and as a as a research uh, uh, community. But let's switch over to the ethical uh, parts of this, which I think in some ways are more obvious. I think to mm -hmm. most people in the field, even if the methodological ones are equally important. Yes. So let's talk about the ethics of this. Yeah. So so I begin by thinking about. Um, the very idea of informed consent. And when I went through and, and looked at the Belmont report and these other kind of foundational documents uh, that have uh, set a basis for how the social sciences and really the biomedical sciences deal with human subjects, um, it was struck me that, the, that how informed consent is conceptualized is tremendously rationalist. There's an idea of you, your obligation as a researcher is to provide a research participant with adequate, sufficient, clear information that the, the research participant then um, should be intellectually able and competent to process the information. So certain procedures are needed for, for children or, or those with special needs to make sure that they can really understand the information. But you present information, you say, uh, you have the right to participate or not participate and the right to withdraw at any time. Do you want to participate? Yes, no, and then you go forward. It's it's almost this machine-like approach to what consent means. You're given information, you process it, you say yes, and then thank you very much. You are now a research participant sort of within my clutches uh, of, of, of uh, for me to now extract, extract data for you, from you. Um, and that's missing this kind of emotional sensibility that people do not always know at the outset of a study what it is they're going to say, mm -hmm. if it's going to make them be comfortable or cause distress, um, that consent, while critical to have that baseline informed consent at the outset, that, that, that researchers should have a, a greater sensibility throughout the research process to be attentive of whether the person from whom they're getting information um, really wants to be there, is really having a, a comfortable participating or not, is experiencing some sort of distress. So it, it's a call to go beyond this, this minimum of informed consent to, to think very carefully and truly be attentive and trying to pay attention to emotions and act accordingly throughout the research session. So that's ongoing one idea. Should not, yeah. Ongoing consent should not be a novel concept. Yeah, it should not be. Uh, it should not be a novel concept, but I think it also requires more than simply asking a question. You know, do you want to continue or not? Because for all sorts of emotional reasons, people might they want might want to please a researcher. They might be ashamed to withdraw. They might feel afraid of the consequences that people have to pay attention to both spoken and unspoken cues and clues and and think about it from an emotional perspective and not simply was I uh, technically given consent or not. Um, you're right. So this sh shouldn't be um, this isn't path breaking in, in the, and, and the first time anyone has said any of this, but in um, in trying to lay out the reasons why and also link them to the methodological implications. It's a, it's a call for for a greater sort of attentiveness to it in the discipline. Oh, no, absolutely. So I, think, I think it's extremely important. And I think that uh, you know, in, in terms of, it almost comes down to just like understanding your research subjects as human beings. Yes, <laughs> understanding <laughs> your human subjects as human subjects. Exactly. Yeah, and understanding yourself as a human too. And mm -hmm. that there's a lot in that that interaction. I keep thinking this is the, the research that human researchers do with human 
research subjects uh, and participants, emotions are, about, are, about, are, are, are imbued in it in every step of the way. So that was one impetus to thinking about informed, the emotional implications and dimensions of informed consent. <laughs> Another was, of course, the more, uh, I think, the more obvious elements of this is thinking about trauma, re-traumatization, emotional harms, and how emotions can cause distress. And while those are, are absolutely uh, important, um, absolutely essential, I think that there's been more attention to this issue of trauma and re-traumatization. And I wanted to expand the conversation about emotions beyond that, to think about emotional harms that do not fall into the category of trauma, um, emotions that affect not simply what we call sort of quote unquote vulnerable peoples. There can be a tendency to say certain categories of individuals are more susceptible to have emotional harm, which I worry stigmatizes and pigeonholes certain groups as being um, almost stereotyping them almost as being more weak um, um, and less capable, whereas saying that other groups of people are kind of hands off, it's all free, no problems, trouble free. And I want to problematize that to say that sometimes people we think of as being vulnerable um, uh, are not necessarily more emotionally vulnerable in categories that we might think not where we don't expect emotions to be an issue might turn out to be a kind that emotions and emotional harm might be possible. So we need a kind of emotional sensibility across, across the board. And again, these are things that I've pulled that many people have been saying for a very, very long time. It's, it's just trying to draw the, the connections across them. And then there's another issue of thinking about emotions beyond harms uh, completely, that, that emotions, that there could be emotional benefits of, of research for, for individuals. I think this is especially uh, important and, uh, or comes to the fore for those of us who work on topics like for example, protest or um, or participation in in uh, political causes in which uh, people might, uh, for example, they could be very painful topics about people who have have, have made experienced great pain and made great sacrifices for a, some sort of a political movement or a, a political cause that we might think that those issues are too difficult to talk about, to talk about someone who's an experience of being in prison or being tortured or losing a loved one or, 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 or having to be, flee their, their home and their country. Um, but there could be certain emotional benefits. People might want to speak about these things, to speak their truths, to have their narrative recorded, to challenge dominant narratives, that even topics that are difficult can be emotionally rewarding or emotionally necessary for individuals. Um, so it's a, an a, uh, appeal to say that these issues are really, the emotional issues are really complicated. For any topic, there could be emotional harms or there could be emotional benefits. We shouldn't say that some topics are off limits or some people are off limits. We just need to be very uh, sensitive to it all and uh, appreciate these complexities and have conversations as a discipline and as a field about these complexities and you know gather lessons learned and 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 try to think openly and reflectively about about what is the right way to proceed in researching these topics. So this is a really important, I think, uh, agenda for the entire research community about how we should rethink how we do research. Can you give us any examples from your own work of how using this approach has helped you to uncover things which otherwise you might have missed? Yeah, I would love to. So, I mean, one thing in, in writing this piece and trying to talk about other methods, you know, I was thinking about survey research and experimental research, and, and especially there is a whole 
sort of category of experimental research these days that is actively trying to affect and trigger emotions to see the effect of emotions on certain responses. Um, and while that work is ex extremely interesting and really exciting findings, in some ways I wanna be among many who says, we need to think really carefully while we are carrying out experiments that actively try to trigger emotions and what the implications are of that, especially ethically. Um, so that's one way in which I try to speak to other types of methods. But my own research has really been grounded in doing open-ended interviews. For the last 10 years, I've been doing open-ended op open interviews with displaced Syrians um, around the world. And those, these interviews have evolved in different ways. But at this point, I essentially sit down with someone and say, tell me about yourself and the person just starts talking and I follow them along for, for the ride in some ways. And I realize that this type of method will not work for the overwhelming majority of political science research questions um, where someone has a, a particular question for which they want to get a particular type of data and I am more opening the, the floodgates to see what people research, or people, sorry, opening, I'm opening the floodgates to see what, what Syrians uh, wanna talk about. But I've adopted this method um, for two reasons related to having an emotional sensibility. One is trying to avoid emotional harms that I have a sense that even asking pointed questions can cause distress. But even asking a question saying, you don't have to answer this question is not sufficient to ensure that a person does not feel a kind of distress when posed a certain question, especially uh, in one in a setting like the Syrian conflict, which is, is um, where there's been so much pain and so much suffering. So. I've now developed my own interviewing technique in which I do not ask pointed questions precisely because I don't want even inadvertently to trigger a pipe of emotional harm. I open the doors and allow a person to talk and I follow along for the ride. But another way uh, or sort of another reason why I've enjoyed this type of method is not just to avoid emotional harms, but also sort of to harness emotional benefits. A person starts talking and I try to pay attention to what is they are most enthusiastic and eager to talk about. You can see when someone is excited about something, when something's meaningful to them, and that's where I sort of stop and probe more. So I, with each interview, try to get a sense of what the person, yeah, is most emotionally engaged with. And that is not only what they ma makes them most happy to talk about or most joyful to talk about, but what I can see something really emotionally matters for them. Um, because it's rewarding, because it's meaningful in some in some way. So, for example, the the book that I'm now completing, um, which is my second book of interviews with Syrian uh, Syrian refugees, is all about the idea of home and what home people's stories of home and their reflections on home and they're thinking about what home means. This is not a topic I began with at all. I never began with an idea of wanting to write, write wanting to write a book about home and then going and talking to Syrians about home. It was simply by, by listening to, to, to my informants, my research, my interlocutors, and, um, and hearing what made them most emotionally engaged, clued me into a topic that really mattered for them because it emotionally mattered, because the questions of home and belonging and where you feel at peace in the world and where you find comfort were, were issues that were important, that were complex, that were multidimensional, that they were struggling with. And there wasn't anything necessarily factual that, that tipped me off to that idea. It was the, the sheer emotion I could see with which they engaged in that topic convinced me, this is really important. I'm gonna focus on it now.
seems like basically a textbook example of um, kind of good interviewing technique and listening to what people are really saying when they say the things. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs>